Corinthians chapter 6. Last Saturday, <clears throat> last Saturday was the final day of moving for Raul and Steph, and thankfully I had rotator cuff surgery a couple months ago. Perfect timing. We were able to, <laughs> we did our part by watching the kids. I think I'd rather lift boxes, but um, <laughs> we watched the kids while the parents did the moving, and, and then we volunteered to make lunch uh, for everybody else who was moving the boxes and belongings. So I made a big pot of taco soup and loaded it into the car with a few other things and, and headed out to their house. And I hadn't been there yet, and it's in a part of the county that I haven't really driven on those roads yet, so I put the address in the GPS. I was very diligent about that, and made off to there, and here I am on their street, but I can't find the number anywhere, and I drove up, and I drove back, and I thought, and I finally called, and I got one number wrong in the address. I wasn't careful enough in putting the numbers into the GPS, and so I lost a little bit of time. The Corinthian Christians came to church, but they weren't very careful about their righteousness. They grabbed a couple of pieces of God's truth, and they ran with it, but they failed to honor God because they failed to live in light of his whole truth. All these things that Paul is telling them in this chapter seem to be things he had already taught them. Because he keeps saying, didn't you know? Didn't you know? Didn't you know? And he was with them for 18 months, so there's a real good chance he had shared all these things. And yet, what they did was, when they went out to live their Christian life, they said, well, here's a little piece, and they ran off. And they failed to honor God because they failed to live in light of the whole truth in our last two studies, we've understood these truths from this passage. Righteous behaviors are chosen by value, not just by permissibility. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, they're permissible, but not all things are helpful or profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Righteous living is the result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, not fleshly desires. There are some things which might be okay, but when we start to participate in them, they take over, and we're not able to be led by the Spirit. Verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Righteous living is based on the divine purpose of our body. The body is not for sexual immorality, but it is for the Lord. So just the fact that we have a natural function doesn't mean that we get to do anything we want. Our body is to be for the Lord. Those are the truths that we've learned thus far. And now it continues on with three more principles today. Starting in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The next truth which these Corinthians needed to add to these three principles is this. Righteous living requires an awareness of Christ's body. Look again at verse 15. Do you not know that your body is a member of Christ or part of Christ, connected to Christ? Paul, again, as I said, he spent 18 months in, or more in Corinth, and so surely he had time to teach truths like this from Ephesians 5. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, Paul is being somewhat poetic in his language, but he's trying to get across, by God's inspiration, that we are as connected to Christ as flesh and bone. You know, all, all, of, all of my body, all of your body has all of these connecting features. It's one whole. My hand cannot go off and sit by itself. We're all one big whole. And, and Paul taught them, and he reiterates it here. Do you not know that your body, your whole life, you are part and parcel of Christ, just like a hand is part of, you can look at your hand and see that it's connected. He says you're that connected to Christ. And he's trying to teach them about what happens when a Christian sins in light of the fact that we're that intimately, integrally connected to Christ. I think some Christians see their connection to Christ like this. You know, at the, at the end of this, there's, there's a guy with a string, and the kite is Christ, and here I am at the other end, or maybe we think of ourselves as the kite, and Christ is hanging on to the string. That's a more spiritual picture. But essentially, we see him out there and me down here. And yes, we're connected, but not really. What's the image that Christ used about our connection? He said, come, take my yoke upon you. He used this image right here. Obviously, this kind of a homely image to, to, to think about Christ and you. But that's the image he used. He said, take my yoke. If you don't know farm husbandry here, this big piece of wood is the yoke with these two wooden attachments to hold it together. He said, I am here in a yoke. Now get in the yoke with me. Now obviously, where the one cow goes or the, the oxen or, help me out, my veterinary, my farming friends, am I okay to call them a cow or a bovine? What should I call them? What's that? Steers? <laughs> we don't know about that. We have to look at the other end of the cow. I know that much. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Whatever they are, <laughs> those bovine type of creatures, where one goes, the other goes. You don't have one going this way and one going that way. If one of them walks into a bog, the other one is in a bog. Christ said, get in the harness with me. That's, that's a mental image that he drew of, of, of being saved, of coming to faith in him. 
later Paul writes were his bones and his flesh. You are that connected to Christ. If Christ is a distant piece of your life, like a kite on a string, maybe out there so far you can barely see it, then it's a lot easier to run your body into places where it shouldn't be because Christ is out there. Paul says, don't you know, don't you know that your body, you are members of Christ. The particular sin that Paul is challenging. Now again, I think all of these principles have broad application to the Christian life. But Paul is talking specifically about sexual sin or immorality. And in that particular sin, he says, are you going to take your body and by committing sin with an immoral woman, literally a prostitute, are you going to bring Christ into contact with a prostitute? Now, he, he uses the word, you know, the, the King James, New King James says harlot. It literally means a woman who is paid for. But when the man pays for her and joins with her, he becomes immoral also, so it's not just a male-female thing here. Paul also uses this same word in other scripture just to refer broadly to sexual immorality. And he's not condemning the act simply because it's wrong. See, there are some things in God's word that have multiple layers, and this is one of them. Sexual immorality is wrong because what is right? Hebrews 13 says there's one thing that is right. There's one proper expression of sexuality, and it's what? Marriage between one man and one woman. Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bed is undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. So everything outside of that is wrong, just period, wrong. But here he's saying, now listen, there are two reasons why it's wrong. There is a dual nature of sexual sin. And it is wrong the second time because when a Christian has immoral sexual relations, they are bringing Christ into that sin by virtue of the fact that that Christ and I are intimately connected, so whoever I get physically intimate with here, Christ is becoming into that relationship. The human existence, look at verse 15, is a unified whole. Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In other words, your body is connected to Christ and your spirit is connected to Christ. It's, it would seem, from everything we've, we've read in the New Testament, that there was a, a, a philosophical doctrine in the world which came into the church, and that doctrine went like this. My body is, is a sinful, um, evil corruption of creation, but my spirit is the good thing. It's really the redeemed thing. So whatever I do with my body, it doesn't even matter because someday my spirit's gonna go to be with God and, and the stuff I do in my physical body doesn't matter. We have the derived doctrine in our society and we say this, it's just a physical thing. And the apostle Paul says, don't you know that your body is connected to Christ? And then he says, your spirit is joined, is one with him. And so we are totally connected to Christ. 
And so we must be aware of that connection. If, uh, you know, if I uh, picked up something here that I could without messing it up too bad, if everywhere I went I carried this with me, and it was right there in front of me, I would be aware of it all the time. Part of our problem with Christ is we can't see him. And so as I walk about my life, is Christ here? Maybe. I don't know. I guess so. You told me so. We have to develop the mentality of saying, I and Christ are deeply connected. So I, when it comes to any sin, I need to ask questions like, with, with any activity, not any sin, would Christ read this? Would Christ watch this? See, we had this saying a few years ago, what would Jesus do? But we still have this dual mentality, which is, well, Jesus is out here doing stuff, and I'm over here doing stuff. I wonder if he came over here what he would do. But he's really not here, so it really doesn't matter. No, Paul says he is here. He is with you all the time. What would Christ watch? What would Christ say? Would Christ go here or there? Would he do this or that? Paul, and in particular, in terms of sexual sin, Paul draws this mental image, and he's trying to get the Corinthian believers to imagine going to the idol worship temple in Corinth and hiring a prostitute for Christ. Now, I cringed just writing those words. We think, oh, that's awful. That's a terrible thought, Dave. It is a terrible thought. Verse 15, don't you know that you take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? If that's a gross thought, good. If that's revolting to you, good. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted the Corinthians to go, whoa, whoa, Paul. And that's why Paul uses his signature reply to this rhetorical question. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them join together to a prostitute? Certainly not. In the King James, it reads, God forbid in the New International, it says, may it never be. And that's what the words literally mean, may it never be. And he uses this a number of times throughout his writings when he comes to a point where it's like, whoa, that is the awfulest thing I can think of. And so he writes this question, then it says, may it never be. May it never be. How does such an awareness become part of your lifestyle? How can you become so aware of the presence of Christ, of your connection to Christ? How can you become so aware that you make righteous choices? It has to be practiced on purpose until it becomes a habit. When you get up in the morning, when you go to work, when you go to lunch, when you cook your dinner, whatever you're doing, it has to become a habit. How do, you, how do you build a righteous habit? Well, start by making a prayer. 
Uh, I'm reading a book on, on uh, growing in Christ. It's called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. Highly recommend it. He's written several books on the Christian life. And he talks about praying specifically for areas in which we are tempted. Well, this would be a specific positive thing to pray for. God, help me to be aware that I am connected to Christ, that he is connected to me, that wherever I go, he goes. Make a prayer. Make a note. Write something down. Stick that sticky note right where it needs to be. Our granddaughter Adelaide from Wenatchee was over and she loves office supplies. <laughs> loves to staple things. She wrote Adelaide and stuck it on the inside of the closet door. Grandma opened it up and there it says Adelaide and I'm telling you what, it's staying put. <laughs> little reminder that Adelaide was there. Maybe you need to put a sticky note on your car, on your refrigerator, on your office, desk, whatever it is that says Christ is here. Christ is with you. Make a rule. What do I mean by make a rule? I think one of the ways to learn a, a new righteous habit is to make yourself a rule. And the rule might go along like, every time I am tempted to think this thought, I will require myself to repeat a verse of scripture that helps me with that thought. I will require myself to pray a prayer, not out of a sense of, well, I did that, now I'm okay, but out of a sense of, God, I want to retrain my mind and heart. And so I'm going to write this down and remind myself, and when this thing comes up, I'm going to stop and, and do that. Uh, from Jerry Bridges that I read this week, he, he referenced Deuteronomy 6. Just listen as I read this may be familiar to some of you when God is giving a commission to his people as they get ready to, to move into the land eventually. He says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And his comment was this. We should use all manner of reminder devices to keep God's commandments continually before us. I like that. All manner of reminder devices. What is it that will remind you that Christ is with you? Whatever it is, do that. And he said, most important is the discipline of Scripture memory. Um, maybe a verse like Hebrews 13, let your life be without covetousness, for he has said, I will never leave you nor uh, forsake you. So you memorize that verse or you put that on a card and every time you're tempted to do some sin, you go, Jesus said he will never leave me nor forsake me. Not only is he here for good, he is here for conviction. Make this a habit the Corinthians were, were walking around like, I don't know if Christ is here or not. La, 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 la. Paul said, don't do that. Righteous living requires an awareness of Christ's body. And secondly, righteous living observes the sanctity of the Spirit's temple. Look at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Every sin that a man does is outside the body 
but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? The principle is very simple here. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is one of those verses that's often quoted in part in the secular world. My body is a temple. Um, Don't ever quote that without the other part, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is not special without God in it. But with God in it, it is highly special. Turn back with me a few pages to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Great chapter in the application section of your notes. I've encouraged you to meditate, read on this chapter this week. It's a wonderful chapter about what it means to be uh, saved, to be born again. But starting, look at verse 9. And he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He makes the point here simply this. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit is in you. You possess the Holy Spirit. Some people would have you to believe that the Holy Spirit is a gift who comes after salvation when you have come to a certain point of faith and you have expressed that and then in some miraculous way the Holy Spirit will come upon you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You either are saved with the Spirit or unsaved without the Spirit. There is no third category of saved and I don't have the Spirit yet. Every person who believes in Christ receives the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 14. Then for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Every believer possesses the Holy Spirit. Every believer is led by the Holy Spirit. Now I know we can rebel We can walk in sin, and that is not God's leading. But as we give ourselves to the Lord, he leads us. We don't have to to beg and plead, Oh, Spirit, please lead me. It might be a good prayer to say, Oh, Spirit, please keep me from walking in my own way. Keep me from the sin that is so easy for me to fall into. Please help me recognize it and say no. But the Holy Spirit is in the business of leading us. And, and thirdly, just as, as three examples of the Spirit's ministry here, every believer is assured of salvation by the Spirit. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with, your, with our spirit that we are the children of God. I realized this, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, but I was meditating on it and I realized, why am I confident that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? You know, it's not because of my great life. It's because the Holy Spirit is inside and when I stop and take note of the fact that where am I headed, the Holy Spirit says, you're coming to heaven that little thing in us that gives us that confidence, that's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't deserve to have that confidence, but God gives it to me. When you believe in Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and your body becomes his temple. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 6 with me. In verse 18, he says, 
every, he said, this, the man who does sexual immorality sins against his own body. Every commentary that I read tried to explain that phrase. What does it mean that sexual sin is against your own body? They said a lot of things that I liked, a lot of things that were good, but ultimately they couldn't support those things from other passages of Scripture. The answer is found in a proper translation of verse 19. And it should start with the word or. If your translation doesn't read that way, you should make a little note there because that's actually what the Greek says. And so there shouldn't be a period at the end of verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? See, the basis of that first statement is the second one. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when you commit sexual sin, you sin against your own body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sexual sin defiles the body of the Christian because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the previous verses, the Apostle Paul said, listen, when you are so connected to Christ, when you get in bed in an immoral way, you make Christ get into the immoral bed. And now he says your body is the residence of the Holy Spirit. And so when you bring immorality to your body, you bring it to the Holy Spirit. That's the sin. Your body is the temple. And so to commit sexual immorality is to defile the temple. Our word sanctuary in English comes from a root word meaning sacred. We typically think of the church, and especially this part of the church, as a sacred space. You would be abhorred to find out that a pornographic movie was shown on that screen by that projector over our sound system. Now, that didn't happen. But if it did happen, you'd say, that's the awfulest thing I've ever heard of. And you'd be right. You would be greatly angered to find out that in this building, a drunken party was happening, and people were committing all manner of sin under the power of alcohol, and rightly you would be abhorred. But friends, the church building, while it is dedicated to God's ministry, it is not a sacred temple. You are. Your body is the sacred temple of the Holy Spirit. When you leave here, this is not the place where the body of Christ is. It's you. Now, I understand and I very much believe that when we come together, God works in a special way, but it's not because of where we are, is it? It's because we are the temple of the Spirit. We are the body of Christ. And so when we come together, there is a unique ministry that happens. The Holy Spirit is working here among us in many ways. But when you go out of here, one of those things you need to work to remember is this is a sacred space. The Holy Spirit dwells here. And so when I'm getting ready to talk, 
when I'm getting ready to read or to watch or to listen, when I'm getting ready to interact, I need to remember that bringing sin into my life is worse than bringing it into the church building. Because we're attached to Christ and because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that's why we have a a really significant responsibility and it's one little phrase, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Great little phrase, it's simple to memorize and if you don't have it memorized, write it on your hand and I would encourage you to just broaden it just a little bit and say run away from sin. Run away from sin, run away from temptation. God isn't saying here, once you are in sexual sin, then you should run and get away from it, although that would be good if you fall to that place. What he's saying is this, when temptation presents itself, you must run from it so you don't commit acts of sin James talks about the process that leads us into temptation. It leads us into sin. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. What James is telling us here is there is a process. It doesn't happen, boom, I'm in sin. There's a process, and that process has two critical steps. First is this, the circumstances of life combined with the desires of our heart to form temptations. The circumstances of life combined with the desires of our heart. Sometimes we can have a sinful temptation all alone just by our sinful heart. More commonly, as we walk through the day, there are things in our world that, that are attractive. Maybe it's a fine, good thing, like a, like a lovely home that we'd like to have, or a beautiful woman or a handsome man. There's nothing wrong with uh, being handsome. There are things that we want that may be good things. There are things that we want may be bad things. And the circumstances of life come around us. Maybe you're in a time when you're extremely poor financially and you look at the beautiful house or you look at the beautiful house on TV or you look at the house that somebody gave someone on TV and and in your heart, this covetousness just starts to come right up. And before you know it, you're bitter and angry and and throwing nasty words at those people and so on. You see, the circumstances of life combine with our heart, but they don't make us do anything. They present the opportunity to respond. Things that we see, things that we imagine. Sometimes those circumstances are very personal. Sometimes they're more distant I have a friend who travels the country preaching God's word and, and he's a friendly guy and at the end of a flight, the flight attendant said to him, where are you staying tonight? And all of a sudden he thought, wow, I'm not that good looking. This has never happened to me before. And he just said, I'm staying over here, not where you are, and took off. 
you know, maybe those kind of temptations don't come to us very often, very personal and very pointed like that, but they can happen. To these days, temptations are lurking behind every wrong keystroke on the computer. Temptation, circumstances of life combined with the desires of our heart, but there's a second step. There's a choice to be made in regard to the temptation. We see the temptation. It's a beautiful thing like this orchid I would suppose came from your house, Chuck. Chuck, one of his hidden talents you didn't know about, he raises orchids and they're beautiful like this. You look at this beautiful thing and you're drawn into it, but are you going to choose to sin? Are you going to choose to run away? 1 Corinthians 6.18, run. Run. Close your eyes. Turn the channel. Put the filter on the internet. Put the computer in a public place. Don't be alone with that interesting person. Don't date the unbeliever ever. Whatever it might be, you cannot control sin, so you need to run from temptation. This is the thing that we've got to get in our minds. I can handle it. No, you cannot. We learned that in previous weeks here in this chapter. Sin gets control of you. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by any. Verse 13, verse 12. The writer of the Proverbs warned his son about sexual immorality, and he said something that's really important for us. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. That's the the enticing person. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. You understand? I can handle this. And the writer of Proverbs says every single one that she took down was a strong man. They weren't weak people. They thought they were strong. But the problem is nobody is strong in the face of sin. God's way of avoiding sin is to run from temptation. I've known of pastors who got into immorality because they said, I should be able to deal with this tempting situation i should be strong enough to handle it so they allowed themselves to be in the tempting situation you know what you're not strong enough i'm not strong enough the way to deal with sin to to avoid sin is to run from temptation the motivation to all of this hits us right in verse 20 righteous living respects the death of christ the only way we're ever going to do this is to take verse 20 seriously You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The last little phrase, in your spirit, by most studies, scholarly studies, doesn't really belong in the verse. It was added to to balance it out, perhaps. He's talking about our bodies all the way through here, and so that's where that ends. Righteous living respects the death of Christ. Think back with me a minute, Christian. Where were you headed before you knew Christ. Where were you headed? Hell. Where are you headed now? Heaven. Why? Because you were something? No. 
because God forgave your sin based on the, the death of Christ and the fact that God put all of your sin onto him and he poured out his wrath onto Christ and Christ took that wrath and paid for your punishment. And so God can forgive you. If it wasn't for the, the sacrifice of Christ, God would be unjust or unfair to forgive. But he's punished your sin already so he can forgive your sin. Salvation was free for you, but it was expensive for Christ. It was expensive for God. Peter put it this way. You were not redeemed or or bought back out of sin with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I have a son. When he was in high school, he got a little medical condition that made me concerned for his life. Turned out to not be life-threatening. But in that moment, I just thought, what would it be like to lose my son? Ooh, boy, I don't like that thought. Some of you have lost some close relatives, maybe some children. If somebody came to you and said, now, I want you to sacrifice your son for my son. I want you to put your son to death so that my son can go free. How precious does that life become? That's what God did. He sacrificed. He separated himself from Christ and poured out your sin on him. This is an, a, a highly expensive sacrifice. And he paid for your sin. And, and so the comment by Robert Gromacki is right on. The right of ownership goes with the price of redemption. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He owns you. And you owe him. That's why Romans 12 calls dedication a reasonable service. Present your body as a living sacrifice. It is a reasonable service. Christ died for you. The least you can do is live for him. The old song says, Lest I forget Gethsemane Lest I forget thy agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. We need to meditate on the cross and the terrible price that was paid. And out of that, we need to come away saying, I am not my own. I am in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in me and I'm owned by God and praise Him, I'm on my way to be with Him someday, therefore I will run from temptation. I don't get to choose which sin that I do and don't do. God has chosen for me. For the Christian, there is no question about abusing my body or using it in some way. There is no abortion question for the Christian. There is no question about sex outside of marriage. There is no assisted suicide question for the believer. There's no debate about any sin, only a, a prayer for submission to God because we belong to Him. In the uh, 
in the fourth century, there was a man who came to be known very well over years. His name was Augustine, and he was a teacher of God's Word and a writer of, of commentary and, and a very um, significant Christian. Uh, you may, may not have heard of him. Those of us who have been to Bible college and seminary and so on certainly have. But before he came to Christ, he was, a, he was as... Um, he was as uh, well known for his sin as he became known for his righteousness later on. He was a big time sinner. And, uh, you know, uh, wine, women, and song, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how he lived his life. And so when he got saved, he left that behind. And he knew that he was so tempted in certain areas of town and with certain people that he just stayed completely away. And one day he had some business to do in a certain in this part of town, and so he went to do his business. And while he was walking through this part of town, a woman who he had sinned with in the past said, Austin, Austin, and she's coming out to greet him. And when, when, uh, when he saw her, it says he gathered up his robes and he turned and ran. And she says, Austin, it's I. And he says, but it's not I. He knew that he was in Christ. He knew that he was a new man. He knew that he didn't own himself. And he knew that he could not say no to her embrace. That's not weakness when you run from that, that strength. And he turned and ran. Christian, are you running from sin? from temptation or to it. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh, whew. it's hard for us, but it'll be easier if we'll keep these truths in mind. Help us, remind us your Holy Spirit is there to minister to us and to, to convict us. Do that, please Holy Spirit. Let us know when we're getting in the wrong way, when we're going in the wrong place, when we're doing the wrong things. Help us to run from temptation, whatever kind it may be. Help us to honor you with our lives because you have paid for us. Thank you for the freedom that we have in salvation, the freedom not to sin. Help us to live in that. I pray in Christ's name, amen.